0: Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com/give. I want to say a few uh, words from scripture about excommunication and about families and the church. Because although it's not the specific sermon text that we have for this week, I think it's very important that this be a time of teaching and learning for all of us from Scripture. And so let me read some things to you. First of all, I would like to read uh, from Mark chapter 10, uh, beginning with verse 28. If you have a Bible, you can turn there with me. Mark 10, beginning with verse 28. What has happened right before this is that a very rich uh, young man came to Jesus and uh, talked about his soul. And the whole discussion, it's obvious that they're dealing with something beyond the body because what he wants to know is what will protect his soul eternally. So he knows that when he dies, that his soul will not die, that his soul will live on. And he's dealing with Jesus about this. And this is the rich young ruler that when Jesus said to him, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor, that the rich young ruler walked away. And he did not go and do what Jesus said, but he kept his money, didn't he? And then Jesus said what? Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to be saved than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And we know that that's Jesus saying what? It's impossible. How do you get a camel? I have enough trouble getting a a thread through a needle. But imagine trying to get a camel. And so the disciples get the point and they say, well, then it's impossible. And then Jesus says, you're right, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible, right? Now, that's the setting for beginning with verse um, 28. Where we read, Peter began to say to him, what? Behold, we have left everything and followed you. So you you feel this very poignant moment. It's very emotional. It's very tender. It's very sad. It's like right now in this service. And Peter always gives voice to what the other disciples are thinking but don't say, right? Right? Yeah. And so Peter says, "But but Lord, we have." And what he's really doing is saying to Jesus, "So so can we be saved?" Does that mean we're saved, right? I mean, it's obviously what he's thinking if he says, "But Lord, we have left everything." And then Jesus says this very, very sweet thing. Jesus said, "Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house Or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age houses and brothers and sisters, and mothers and children, and farms. And then he adds that little statement along with persecutions. All right. And in the age to come, eternal life. So. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. So what we see here is you have the rich young ruler, and he turns and he walks away because he loves his money. And then you have Jesus standing here watching him and sad. And then here on this side of Jesus are the disciples, and they've lost left their mother, their father, their son, their daughter, their wife. They've lost left their farms. They've lost left their shipping. uh, I mean, their fishing ships, uh, boats. And they say, Lord, we've, and he says, hey, you'll get it back a hundred times in this life, and in in the life to come, eternal life. In other words, Jesus is saying, yes, 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 yes. Now, is that because they gave up everything to follow Jesus? No, they gave up everything to follow Jesus. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's power worked in them. Remember, Jesus said, with, with you it's impossible. So when they said, Lord, we've given everything up, they weren't saying, so, so will you reward us with the eternal life? That is what they were saying. But Jesus had just gotten done saying, it's impossible with man, but with the Spirit of God, it's possible. Now, why am I bringing that up at this time? Well, let's read another text, another passage of Jesus. This is Matthew 28, beginning with verse 32. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew is the first gospel of the New Testament, the first book of the New Testament. Now, wait. <laughs> Yikes. Maybe it's 18. Let's hope it's 18. All right, Tim. Uh, Well, I'll bet it's 32 to 39. So whoever finds it first, and you say, what is it? And I say, which is it? Uh, 32. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Um, Anybody find what they think I'm looking for? I mean isn't that the life of all of you in this church What does Tim want? I give him We play wedding and he's not happy and then we play funeral and he's not happy and What is it? Well, thank you for asking. No, <laughs> good, good guess. Okay, um, it's the section where he talks about the sword. I wonder whether it's uh, no, It is Matthew, so it's I've come to bring the sword. Uh, Twenty-eight. Is it eight? It's Matthew 10.30. Okay, Matthew 10. Yeah. Right on. Two people got it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the reason that none of us will use smartphones for Scripture. Yeah, except my daughter. Or I should say Ben's wife. Don't worry, I know. (laughs) Okay, let's read this now. Um, Okay, um, let's start with 31, because that's the tender statement again from Jesus. Jesus says, so do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. And then he says, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. What you've seen this morning is that the son of Tim and Ann Wegner has denied Jesus Christ. And so will Tim Wegner acknowledge his son before his father? Do you understand? That's what Jesus says. Let me read it again. Anyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. This is what every mother and every father who is a Christian goes through. Every single one. We realize that when Jesus says this, Jesus is saying, if your son does not confess me before you and before the world, then you are not to acknowledge him as your son before your heavenly father. Do do you all get that? Now, let's keep going because you're probably thinking at this point I'm wacko. Right? But let's keep going. Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. It didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Yikes. Right? For I came to set a man against his boss and a daughter against her union steward. (laughs) Isn't that horrible how they've corrupted the language of family and brotherhood for unions? No, 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 no. Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Now listen, that whole discussion has to do with our families and the wealth of our home, our mother, our father, our brother, and our sister. That's what Jesus spoke about before in Mark, and he equated it with giving up your farm. All right, what does a man love more than his land, right, Mike? Okay, and so right next to land is put father, mother, brother, sister, wife, and husband right so what has gone on this morning is that the fathers of this household refuse to acknowledge Jonathan as a member of this household that's what excommunicate means this table Jonathan may no longer come to do you understand me now you you, you all see my affect it's just changed hasn't it did you notice that this table Jonathan will no longer come to Do you understand? You see, there's something going on there. What is it? Well, it's a father stealing his nerve to not let his heart overrule the glory of God. Do you hear that? I can be as tender as tender can be with you, but if Jonathan denies my Lord, he will not come to this table anymore. Now, Your goal as a parent, as a father and mother, is to make it very clear to your children that it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. Every single thing you do with your child is aimed at preparing them to stand before the holy God, humbly confessing their Savior Jesus Christ. Do you see this? Your goal is not to have a good old age with all your little granny kids around you. That's something that God gives us that we're delighted to have. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing to be thanksgiving around the table with all your loved ones. But if your wife denies God, are you going to acknowledge her as your wife? Remember, he says husband-wife in here. I told the story yesterday in David's Mighty Men of a dear friend of mine and a a nationally known Christian leader, godly. And his wife came to him one day, and she she didn't go to church. And when he got home, she said, I'm done. I don't believe in Jesus Christ anymore. He did everything he could to get her to repent of her blasphemy. And of her denial of Jesus, and it, it didn't work. He went to a counselor, he begged her, he did everything he could. And then came the time... And he said, all right, I will give you the divorce you're asking me for. Why? Because the New Testament says if you're married to an unbeliever and and they don't want you, you're free. And so he said, but I tell you something. I will only give you a divorce on the condition that you are done with your children. And from this day on, those children belong to me. I'll never forget him telling me that. And I thought, what a monstrous thing to ask a mother to do. And what a monster would ask that of, of of his soon-to-be ex-wife. And then I listened to him. And what he said was, you know, we, we, we worked at a school together, my wife and me. And he said, we saw all the time how children were ripped apart by their parents fighting over them after divorce. And so I said, what did she say? And she said, yeah, I agree to that. And I said, really? And she lived by it. He said, "Yes, yeah, she lived by it. And when they reached 21 he said a number of them went ahead and had contact with her. And he said, that was fine. That was fine. But you see, this is a Christian man who who does what? God. 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 So often in this church, and I said this once like eight years ago, and all heck broke loose from you afterwards. You were so angry at me. So often in this church, I watch as families are divided over God. It's just so clear. To me, it's clear. I'm not saying it would be clear with my own family, but as I watch you, it's clear. And you'll see a marriage destroyed. Why? Because one of the partners doesn't know God. Husband or wife, they don't know God. And the other one does. And so the dividing time comes. Now, let me ask you, in America today, when somebody says cult, what do they mean? I can't think of a better definition of a cult as the world uses the term, than somebody who lives in this life for the life to come. Anybody who is motivated and examines their actions and makes decisions, what they're going to do on basis of the life to come, the immortality of the soul, that's a cult. You understand? Because... People look at you and they say, I can't explain your actions by monetary transfers, money. I can't explain you by familial obligations. There's something going on here that I can't get. I'm reading this book that is a dialogue between two intellectuals, both of whom are just absolutely pagan, no faith, no belief in God. And... uh, Well, and also, I just read an opinion by that guy in the the Seventh Circuit. And you read him trying to to, uh, define what religion is. And it's just hilarious because worldlings cannot understand anybody who has a commitment to something they can't see, you know? And so a cult is somebody that lives in this life for the life to come. A cult is any group of people who live together in such a way that that they prepare for the judgment. Right? You with me? Now, the number two definition of a cult is any group of people who do something religious that requires people in the group to make a choice against their family. Right? I mean, isn't that... I mean, everybody thinks that's a cult. If any religious group ever divides a family, it's a cult. Why? Well, because the ultimate values are family values. You see? And so we have to be very careful when it comes to what Jesus himself says. How the world can read this and and still refer to people who make a decision for God over their family is cultish, is beyond me. I mean, you know, most Americans believe the Bible's God's word and Jesus is God's son. And here he said it he said it and you either have faith and believe what he said or you will live in such a way as you will never be persecuted for being a cult okay and jesus will brook no competitors he will not tolerate anybody getting in between him and you not your husband not your wife all right not your son not your daughter not your grandparents, not your pastor, nobody. Nobody can come between you and God. You will stand before him alone. You won't stand with your grandmother. You won't stand with your husband. You remember after, uh, after, you remember after uh, Ananias was killed by God for lying? You remember this. That then she came in and then God led the church to ask her, Is this how much you sold your property for? And her husband be standing next to her. (laughs) He was dead, but he was still there. You know, she had done what he had agreed to. He's her head. I always like to say this to homeschooling families. (laughs) You you understand? You know, because they always talk about patriarchy. And my husband's my head. Oh, yeah? Until he dies, killed by the Holy Spirit in the presence of the people of God. And then who's your head? Well, then your head is yourself. You stand alone before the judgment seat of God. And when she lied herself, yeah, she could say, Ananias led me to do it. Ananias is my head. I'm only submitting to my husband. And she is struck dead by God. What was her proper action? Her proper action was for her to say it was a lie. I allowed my husband to lead me into a lie, right? So listen, I want to say to every single one of you, I don't care who your husband is. I don't care who your wife is. I don't care who your mama is. Okay? I don't care if you don't know who your mama is. Actually, everybody knows who their mama is. It's who your daddy is. I don't care. Jesus says that if we do not acknowledge him before men, he will not acknowledge us before his Father. And that means that God and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit trump your marriage, they trump your children, they trump your parents, they trump your farms, they trump your nationality, they trump absolutely everything. And so by faith today, we take a son of this church, and you will not come to this table again. And you say, well, why do you keep talking like that? Well, my son knows why I keep talking like that. Why? Well, it's because your heart is in such play. You know what I mean by a heart being in play? Uh... I don't know that that's an idiomatic expression that you guys will get, but it's like your heart's going, oh! You know, it's just like, oh, I can't handle it. And what does a dad do? When his heart is busting, he's so sad, he goes, you will not. You, You know what I'm saying? It's our way of disciplining our heart. Do you understand that? And so people who are stupid and worldlings and unbelievers will look at such a time as this, and they'll say they're heartless and cruel. And I say, no, they've never been as loving because they're willing to do something that makes absolutely no earthly sense for the sake of eternity. Okay? And so what you need to do this morning is you need to decide whether you're a Christian or not. And you say, well, what does that have to do with me? And I say, because either you this morning have tears and grieve for Tim and Ann, and for me, and for you, and the elders, and for everybody in this church that has lost a son of the church. Or, you are embarrassed that the church would be so serious, and would take such action. And if that's the case, then you're not a Christian, because you're a worldling, because you You can't understand making a choice between the family of man and the family of God. The family of God trumps the family of man. The family of God always is relegating the family of man. The family of God is always jealous about its pride of position over the family of man. Do you all understand this? And this, this morning, is the most important thing about this church. We will not give our children over to our sentimentality, to our tenderness, to their mother's pleadings, to embarrassment, to all these things that cause churches to have the family of man above the family of God. Do you understand, if my son Taylor, who is here this morning, denies God, he is what? Come on, tell me. He's no longer my son. He is not my son. And you say, well, how could you be such a monster? And I say, no, I want to see him in heaven. And the only way I'm going to get him in heaven is if I give him up on this earth until God deals with him. And then the son comes home, and I'm the first one that sees him. And I kill the fatted calf, and we party. Right, Ollie? Come on, say it. Right! Right on. But we don't kill that fatted calf. We don't party. We don't have a banquet. We don't have a feast until Allie comes home. And until then, there's mourning. And if that's a cult, then I'm a cult. You're a cult. We're a cult. And I'm so committed to this cult, I'm going to go to the grave as a cult. You know? Allie, where are you? Actually, not Allie. Anthony, would you stand up and lead us in prayer? Let's all stand and let's have Anthony lead us in prayer for Jonathan,
1: okay? Gigantic ear. Dear Heavenly Father, pray for Jonathan, pray for his family, pray that you'll watch over him and do your best to work in his heart through him, the people around him, and those attempting to communicate with him. I pray that you punish him lovingly for his sin, that you would show him that there is no other way. Show him that you are the only thing that can bring him happiness in life. Show him that he is what should matter most, his soul is what should matter most to him, and that glory to you is what should matter most to him. Work through his family, break down the walls that he is putting up around himself because that is what he's doing. He's putting up steel, unbreakable walls. And you are the only one that can break them. Pray that you bring comfort to Tim and his wife. That they will know that to have faith in you, that you will work in him. And that you will bring him back if that is your plan. Pray that you watch over the rest of the church and that this will be an example to others that are questioning of you. That there is no happiness without you there is no real joy there is no real family and that this is only earthliness there is only worldliness and sin that brings on the false happiness of what it is to be a non-believer I pray that you bring him back to us and that we use our own experiences to show him what it is to come back to you and the Great joy it is to be in your presence, in the presence of your people. We pray in your glorious name.
0: Amen. Remember that the name Father comes from God, it doesn't come from man. God is the Father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. So he has pride of position. Right, God is our Father. Okay. Now, one other thing I want to talk to you about today, and that's our text from uh, from Second Corinthians nine, and that's up on the wall. So, if you don't have a Bible, you can read it there. Let's let's hear the Word of God. This is the Apostle Paul talking, and he's talking about an offering they're taking up for another church that's poor. So. A bunch of churches are collecting money to help, say, the church in Philippines after a disaster, but it was the church in Judea. And he says this, after he's talked about collecting the offering, he says, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. And increase the harvest of your righteousness, you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ, and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I'm... We're looking at this today because last week you all gave for the capital campaign. You did a wonderful, wonderful job. And what joy we had. Okay? And I want you to note that God loves cheerful givers. And if there's one thing that's clear in this church, it is this church is characterized by cheerful giving. And it's been that way from the very beginning. There are some of us who are stingy and are shamed by our wives into giving, or by our husbands. But generally, yeah, we have trouble, right? But generally, we sow liberally, we sow generously in this church. And last week was an indication of that. And it's such a precious thing. Why? Well, it's because it's obvious that we as a church know God and trust him and live by faith. We're not living by sight. Right? You know that. You know that you couldn't have given what you gave last week if you were doing it on the basis of, you know, an accountant or an investment officer or something like that. You know, what you gave last week was an act of faith. Right? And now God has to provide. And I want you to see that in your life, you're constantly demonstrating either faith or unbelief. And the central metaphor that Scripture has used in this text to illuminate, to help us to see whether we're living by faith or whether we're living by unbelief is the issue of how we sow. And there are two categorizations of sowing. All right? We're not talking about needle and thread. We're talking about seed. One is the person who sows stingily, All right, the person who sows sparingly, and the other is the person who sows generously, who sows liberally. You remember the word liberal was used twice in the text. Liberality. All right, But there's another qualification too for how you sow. It's not just whether you sow generously or sparingly. It's also whether you sow cheerfully or under compulsion. And so two things make God pleased with us and show that we're living by faith. One is if we sow generously and one is if we sow cheerfully. We can sow generously and under compulsion. And that doesn't cut it. It doesn't please God. We can sow stingily, and that doesn't please God. What pleases God is those who sow liberally, with liberality, generously, and those who sow liberally and cheerfully, who do it cheerfully, right? So our goal is that we give a lot to God and that we give happily. Now, let me ask you this morning... Jonathan is the product of a man who sows generously. Not always cheerfully, but generously. And mostly cheerfully. Now what am I talking about? I'm talking about Tim. Tim Wagner. Tim Wagner and his wife are known in our church for the couple that as of this point has been most generous in sowing. And you go, oh, come on, Tim, sowing is seed. Would you please stick to the text? He's talking about seed. And I say, yeah, 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 that's what I'm talking about. And actually, the application that the Apostle Paul makes is the one that does, isn't literal. Because he's talking about money. <laughs> so I'm actually sticking more closely to the metaphor than the Apostle Paul is. They're both right, right? We sow constantly, don't we? We just never stop sowing. The last couple of years, we've been trying to get grass to grow in certain places. And when you go and buy grass seed, so that you actually look at how much it costs, and you go out to spread it, and you know how much it costs, it's like all of a sudden your little grubby paw gets tight, and you just sort of make a little hole here, and it's like... You know, you don't go whop, right, with all the seed. You're you're just, shake a little bit here, shake a little bit here, right? If you have a garden, you're planting beans. Well, I don't know, should I put another little seed down or should I just maybe move over a foot? You know, I don't want to have to, I don't want to have to pull out the plants that are, you know, in between. I mean, you know, let's just, Trust that every seed's going to germinate. I'm going to save my seed. Tim and Ann Wegner sowed their seed. Do you understand? Nine children. They sowed. They done sowed their seed. Right? Can can we talk this way in America? Or is sex just belong to the pagans? Okay. They sowed their seed. And now what's happened? So Tim and Ann were foolish, Right? But you understand what I'm saying. When I've just gotten done preaching on our families and our children, and we've seen one of the sons of this church excommunicated, told he may not come to the table, it seems like the natural response of all of us would be to have fewer children. So we can really concentrate on two of them. You know what happens when a homeschool mother has her claws dug in deep to her children? The harder she grasps them, the fewer of them she holds on to. Right? Right? Some of you have mothers like this. The more she calls you, the more you wish that she would never call you again. And so the wise mother, when her son leaves the home, or her daughter, she she just lets there be a little bit of time where you begin to miss her. And she waits for you to call her. Right? Right? Listen, the fact that God takes seed and... Uh, causes it to be put into the ground, what do we do? We take a plow and we knife the ground. Are you with me? We knife the ground and then we put the seed into the ground and when that seed goes into the ground, what happens? It dies and it rots. Are you with me? We have to die to the seed and to it being gone if there's going to be new life. And so we can decide that we're fearful that that seed might just simply die and not germinate. And then we can become American Christians today. We're just so committed to making sure that we don't have enough children that any of them will disappoint us. But the truth is then all our children disappoint us because they grow up spoiled brats. And... They've been taught from the time they were little that their purpose of their life is to make your life happy. (laughs) You know? And you've ordered your life in such a way that your children will have the best opportunity they can have. And then they graduate from college and they're going to go over to Africa and take care of all the AIDS orphans. Because why? Well, because nobody's ever taught them that they're just a drop in God's bucket. And that nothing happens without God bringing the increase. Do you understand? And the fact is, whether you have two children or ten or twenty, nothing happens without God blessing it. Do you understand that? And so, if you look at this text, what does it say? Well, here's what it says. Okay. I am just... I'm sorry. I'm, I'm back in Matthew now. All right. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. What God is saying is that when we take our hand and we go like that, that there's going to be a huge harvest. Why? Well, it's a principle of nature. No, that's not why. God is the one that causes the man who sows liberally to reap liberally. We're always removing God by giving chemical and physical and other explanations. But God is the one who makes the promise, and he's the one that will fulfill it. And then he says, each one must do just as he's purposed in his heart, not grudging under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, God's going to bless your liberal sowing more if your heart is in it. You will receive more fruit when your heart is cheerful. Why? Well, it's, it's the environment, right? No, it's not the environment, it's God. God will not just respond to you in how much you sow, but he'll respond to you in the way that you sow it, okay? And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. In other words, God is not uh, limited by the laws of the physical world, but As you sow liberally and as you sow cheerfully, God is able. And what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. God has an unending store of grace. And he'll make it abound to you. All right? And then what's the proof? Well, go back to Psalms in verse 9. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. So in other words, when we see the fecundity and fertility of nature, all right. When we see how the poor are provided for, this is teaching us the character of God, that he's not limited in his resources and that he is able to make things multiply. This is in his nature. Then, now he who supplies seed to the sower, in other words, the sower, when he gets his seed, doesn't get it because he goes to the bank and, and borrows money to buy seed corn. He doesn't get it because he goes to the co-op And you don't get your bread when you come to this table because the deacons put it there or we hand it to you. God gives you your seed. He gives you your bread. Right? He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for supply will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. And so even what you give to the church, it's because he made you able to give. In other words, even your generosity and cheerful heart and the amount you gave are a function of him multiplying what you give. Okay? You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality. Isn't it perverse that Democrats own the term liberal? Liberality, when it's given to you by the world, it's a lie. There's nobody more liberal than communists. You know, the people should own the means of production, right? Than socialists. But what do socialists actually do? Well, I got done reading a book called uh, Bloodlands. Any of you ever heard of the, the, the book Bloodlands? You should all read it. It's a work of history today about that place in between Germany and Russia where all the 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 scores of millions were killed over a period of, I don't know, five to fifteen years. It's where Stalin killed. Who did Stalin kill in order to bring in the liberality of the communist era? He killed the colics. Who are the colics? The farmers. Why did he kill the farmers? He killed the farmers because they were not submitting to him ideologically. They were tied to their land and they loved their land. And so what did Stalin do with them? Stalin starved the farmers. If they came into the cities in the Ukraine, they would find people who had been given cards to get food standing in a line, but because they were from the countryside, farmers, they were not given cards, and they would literally starve to death next to the lines of the people waiting to get their food. And this is liberalism. I mean, do you understand this? Liberalism promises you what it doesn't give you when it's man's liberalism. It promises you that you'll be enlightened. It promises you that you will be able to have everybody in the country, the poor and the rich, equally sharing, you know? From each according to each according, right? And then what happens? What happens is, you have to break some eggs to make an omelette, says Stalin. How many eggs had to be broken? Solzhenitsyn estimated at between 60 and 80 million that communism killed just in Russia. Then you go over, what, to Cambodia. Any of you know about Pol Pot? Huh? Read about Pol Pot? And what about liberalism in America? the defining mark of liberalism in America is abortion. 1.3 million babies a year have to die so that we can have our liberal enterprise. And they claim that they're the generous ones and I'm the tight one? Listen. Satan is a liar from the very beginning. It's in his nature. And Satan will always promise you that over at the university you'll get inclusivity. You'll get pluralism. You'll get liberalism. You'll get compassion. You'll get, gen- you'll, you'll get generosity. And then what happens is, President McRoby announces that he's going to have a wonderful celebration of Christmas. But he can't say Christmas because it has the name Christ in it. And so it's a happy holiday festival. Now, is that generosity of spirit? No, that's a tightwad. That's a man that can't even bring himself to acknowledge his cultural heritage. And I'm not mad. I just think it's hilarious. And I just decided to yell it just for the sake of yelling it, you know. I mean, it's just so ridiculous, you know. How about a little bit of inclusivity of cultural heritage, you know, just for the sake of it, you know. (laughs) No. This is so stupid. Liberals are never liberal. Christians are always liberal. Christians have invented hospitals. Christians are the ones that ended slavery. Christians are the ones that don't burn their wives on a pier when their husbands die. Christians are the ones that go pick the babies up on the rivers. I have a friend who was a missionary in China at the beginning of last century, and he told me how he grew up with the Christians in China picking up the little children that were abandoned on the rivers' edges, the riverbanks. Christians are what? Come on, say it. I know it goes against your grain, but say it. Christians are liberal. We're liberal with our seed. We're liberal with our money. We're liberal with our arts education. Liberal arts education. You know, here's an idea Christians are the ones that are free to think thoughts, and those pagans can't even get out of a prison with their brains because they're so busy telling you what words you can't use and what thoughts you may not have. And there's nothing in this church I haven't heard and responded to with equanimity. <laughs> Listen, God is the God of freedom. God is the God of generosity. God Our Father tells us that from him come down out of the heavenly lights every good and perfect gift. God is the one that invented the fecundity of middle America. Have any of you ever lived in California? Alex just moved back here. He was in the first service. and I said, Alex, because I moved back here from California, I said, isn't it unbelievably fertile here? I mean, here's all this grass, and we've never watered it. (laughs) You know, imagine California, and California is so tight, they're so poverty-stricken that all they have is cars and bodies. I mean, that's basically Southern California, cars and bodies and moving pictures. I mean, it's just awful, sorry. You're from Northern California, though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Northern California is a little bit... More perverse. (laughs) Yeah, Up there they call me a breeder. All right. And so God is a God, and and I want to read this to you because it's just such an indication of, of God's liberality, you know? You know what liberals are always trying to do? They're always trying to get rid of man so man won't hurt nature, you know? They always have to protect nature from man. You know, that's, that's the definition of a liberal. You know? And so they tell a woman not to give in to her nature and have a baby, but to destroy her nature, and if one grows, to kill what grows, so that they can protect nature. So apparently women aren't natural. Unless they don't eat gluten, right? Okay. Oh, no, it's, That was a joke. All right. Now, listen to this. A team of astronomers, the University of California, Berkeley, and the University of Hawaii, used the Kepler Space Telescope to survey stars looking for a telltale dimming caused by an orbiting planet's cross between us and the parent star. They've been looking for planets in what astronomers call the Goldilocks zone, which you should explain that to them. I don't know that. You, do you know what Goldilocks is? They, they should read. They should read the story, and once they read the story, they'll understand it, okay? A place that's not too hot and not too cold and just the right size for life as we know it. And I'm editing the article because NPR at ended that sentence with, for life as we know it, to evolve. You know? Okay, all right. Andrew Howard, one of the study's co-authors at a recent news conference, estimated that, quote, with about 100 billion stars in the universe, that's about 20 billion such planets. That's so they estimate that there are 20 billion planets among the 100 billion stars that are in the sweet zone that can sustain life or can allow life to evolve, right? But some of you know that I lied to you. Because that 100 billion stars is only in our Milky Way galaxy. (laughs) And boy, we, we better, we better really, you know, we better, I mean, you know, I mean, coal and oil and all this stuff, you know, we better, you know. And so they go on and say, that's just in a single galaxy. If the figure for potentially habitable planets derived by the team of scientists is correct, we could multiply the 20 billion planets by about how many galaxies? 500 billion. (laughs) 500 billion galaxies. And so they estimate, way we could have 1,000 trillion Earth-like planets. And God's so stingy. He just can't quite. All right. And that's, according to the article, only in the, quote, observable universe. The observable universe. This is our God, this is the God we worship. This is the God that we confess before men without shame. This is the God that we give our money to. This is the God that we give our marriage bed to. This is the God that we give our children to. This is the God that we give our house, our grass seed, our garden, our property, our concrete, our cows, our land. And he says that he will take every single thing that we give him and he will multiply it as we give and then he will pour back a hundred times what we give him. And so Tim and Ann are giving one of their sons to God now. It wasn't their choice. But they are choosing that they will stand with the church of Jesus Christ. And so they're turning their back on their son. Will they get a son back? They'll get back a hundred sons. A hundred sons. How many of you are sons of Tim Wagner? And we've only started. We've only just begun. (laughs) Yeah, you know me too well. (laughs) Yeah, it's Karen Carpenter. I don't have the ability of thinking without songs going through my brain, you know. Sometimes associations are unfortunate. So listen, I want to tell you that God has brought glory to himself through you. And you can trust him with your sons. You can trust him. We can trust him with the sons of this church, with the sons that you have. And just one final statement about last week. Good you. That's a Dave Carell expression. Good you. Good you. What a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing. And so I talk to my friends that are at very wealthy Presbyterian churches with thousands of members and tens of millions of dollars in their budgets and this, that, and the other thing. And I say, you ain't got nothing on me. Why? Well, because I serve a generous church. I serve a cheerfully generous church. And that means that when I preach, you want the seed to be cast liberally. That's my final application, right? Isn't preaching casting our seed on the water, right? Are you with me? And isn't it true that you want the most generous amount of seed as possible from your sermons, right? Every single person who preaches here is facing you knowing that you expect them to not hold back, right? And what do you think is the thing that is happiest, makes a pastor happiest? There's nothing that comes close to that, preaching to a church that wants you to go for it. There's nothing that's more demoralizing in your work than when your boss wants you to not go for it, right? You've all had jobs like that, you know? Taylor went to work for a company and he was zealous, he kept, well, I'm sorry, Yeah. Well, it's true. And he worked hard, and he got done under the bid time. And stupid Taylor. We've all had jobs like that, right? Where you give yourself to the work, and then you get punished. I mean, I'm not, don't, you don't have to feel sorry for Taylor. Every punishment he gets, he needs. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. He's my son, by the way. Well, anyhow, let's come to the Lord's table and let's, let's, let's rejoice today that God has given us the freedom to be generous with each other and that we see f- so much fruit from this church, so much fruit from this church. So, what's how do you say it? You good or you? Good you. Yeah, good you. Good you. By the grace of God, good you. All right, elders, please.